Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Here at How to Money, we're always encouraging listeners to think about some of the different ways they can earn some money on the side to reach their financial goals. And guess what? While you're away, your home could also earn extra income. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. Yeah, hosting is a lot easier than you might think, and you don't need to Airbnb a whole house. You can just host your extra spare room. So consider becoming an Airbnb host, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking about living life with the end in mind with Jordan Grummet. Yeah, you know, as someone who likes to nerd out on numbers and data, I feel like it can be really easy to get lost in a sea of like different formulas, rule of thumbs, uh, even like empirical research out there, all in an attempt to ensure that you're living the most efficient and optimized life that you possibly can. But I feel like that's when the subtle shift can take place, right? Like that's when the means to the end uh, begins to overshadow the actual end, which for for many folks is just to simply live a good and happy life. And instead, we should be, you know, living our lives with the end in mind. That is why we're talking with Dr. Jordan Grummet today, uh, also known as Doc G. Jordan was an internal medicine physician when he discovered the personal finance community, and uh, since then he started an award-winning podcast. He's now the author of Taking Stock, which is a hospice doctor's guide, essentially, on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. And that's going to be published here in a couple of weeks, and so we're excited to talk about all of this today, uh, plus more uh, with you, Jordan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Yeah, we're excited for it too, Jordan. You told us about you know your upcoming book, 
I think something like a year ago, and we've just been waiting, waiting mm. to get our hands on it because it sounded so up our alley. So we're excited to chat about that. But first, we have to ask. Uh, we ask every every guest what their craft beer equivalent is, what it is that they're spending money on intentionally in the here and now, while saving and investing well for the future. So yeah, what's that for you? So when I was in residency, I had bought my first house and I had all of these empty walls. And so I went slogging through a bunch of art galleries and I found that I love fine art. I like artwork and I like to spend money on it. And several times I have gone way out of budget to buy a specific <laughs> piece because it fits somewhere in my house. And I'll tell you what, years and years later, I still sometimes walk around my house and stare at the artwork. Mm, nice. I like that. I mean, yeah, you, you had to drop some big money on that. I was going to say either Basquiat or <laughs> is it the uh, the Beeple. I don't know. Like, which, which one was it? I don't think you... Jordan had Beeple kind of money. I don't think so. <laughs> which one did you cash off? Plus, so, you can't you can't see it on your walls <laughs> if you buy a Beeple. Well, I've, I've heard you talk about this, Jordan. Like, you've talked about, too, how you kind of got into the secondary art market, right? And so you were taking, like, you were buying pieces and then actually reselling them. You were kind of uh, finding your way within sort of the, the entire industry uh, within the art world, right? I was, because I found that the pieces I wanted to buy for my condo at the time were way too expensive. And when I found out how to get them cheaper, I made it into a business. One caveat or thing to warn you about is when you take your passion and you turn it into a money-making entity, sometimes that decreases your excitement about that passion. Mm. The saddest part for me is I would order a bunch of artwork to then distribute to other people. And I'd have these beautiful pieces of artwork that started feeling a lot like paper to me because they were coming hmm. in and out so fast. So that's the only problem. I actually enjoy it a lot more now that I don't deal in artwork nice. anymore. Like, yeah, I could see that. Did, I guess it felt like a liability, right? Like it felt like inventory that you maybe... Or just like dollar signs. You're <laughs> like, oh, okay, man, this is this went for... I'm going to make, you know, five grand on this yeah. piece of art instead of being able to, to... the actual art. Just enjoy it, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you love about some type of collection is the scarcity. So what happens when it becomes your business and it's not scarce anymore? Hmm. That painting that you loved, you've got 20 of them sitting on your table ready to be shipped out somewhere. Uh, it loses that sense of scarcity um, or it's less unobtainable and right. that makes it less enjoy enjoyable. Yeah, well, you are not going to convince us to stop enjoying beer on our show, uh, even, <laughs> even though it's a, it's a part of what we do here. What Joel was saying about you know your book and why we were so excited about it was the fact that you're just going to be talking so much about death, and that's not a topic that often gets touched on within personal finance. And, and one, of those, one of those few topics most of us try to avoid yeah, most of the time. Yeah, folks tend to look... Yeah, look, look toward like the more uplifting <laughs> topics, right. I guess. But I mean, for you, Jordan, like death, it's been a part of your your life since you were young. You know, you talk about how like when you're seven years old, your dad passed away. I can't imagine how painful that was. And you just talk about how that event, how it influenced your personal story. It, it, it had a pretty wide ranging impact, right? Oh, it, it totally did. And and think about now as someone who deals with personal finance, I have a podcast where we talk about money all the time. You know, I watched my dad die at 40. How could that not change my opinions about money and how we use it? He died at such a young age if he hadn't spent money and had been holding it and waiting until he was older to do the things he really loved, he would have really missed out. Yeah. And and so when you talk about the wide-ranging impact, like you even kind of your career decisions were largely based on your earliest memories of your father, right? Yeah, he died when I was seven, and it was just at that time that most kids, especially boys, idolize their fathers. And so I wanted to be just like him, 
When he died, I didn't have a reason. And being a little kid, I tended to look at everything through my own personal lens. So I kind of felt like I was responsible. Like I did something wrong and that's why he died. And so the way to make up for that was I could become a doctor like he was. I could step into his shoes. I could finish that work that the poor guy was never able to do. And that became a real sense of identity and purpose for me. It carried me throughout, you know, difficulties in schooling. I had a learning disability and it was unclear that I was ever going to learn how to read. It carried me through those long hours of studying in high school and college. Um, It just made it clear in my head that this is the thing I was supposed to do with my life. Well, we're talking about how you've kind of entered into the personal finance space. Like you're still working now, right? But just less than you used to. So I still do some medicine, but I only Mm -hmm. practice hospice and palliative care, which is taking care of the dying. And I spend maybe 10 to 12 hours a week doing it as opposed to, you know, in my prime, I was probably working 60 to 70 hours a week. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah. So that's a lot of hours. Like what what did it actually look like? Like what did the day to day look like for you when you were clocking all all of those hours as you were a hospice doctor? Well, before I became a full-time hospice, I was running a general internal medicine practice, which meant that I was taking care of pretty much adults in everything non-surgical. So I was seeing seeing them in the office. I was seeing them when they got admitted to the hospital. I was going to nursing homes. And I owned my own practice and pretty much was on call for myself. So if you can imagine, I was on call 24-7, seven days a week, all nights, all weekends, all holidays. And I would start every morning at 4.45. I'd drag myself out of bed. I would Dang. run to the nursing homes. Then I'd run to the hospital. Then I'd run to the office. When I was done with the office, I'd run back to the hospital or the nursing home. I had a busy life. I was getting calls at mm. 2 or 3 in the morning on a regular basis. I was working mm. all weekends. I mean, pretty much I was the guy. The buck stopped with me. And in some ways, that really helped me build a financially successful practice. It helped me be a part of people's lives and provide for them stellar medical care, but it didn't really feed my soul. And in a lot of ways, it was the quick road to burnout when I realized that I wasn't enjoying what I was doing anymore. I was spending more and more time doing paperwork and doing things that didn't feel important the way actually going to see patients used to. Right. And I started questioning whether this was the way I wanted to spend the rest of my life. So, I mean, was it like the artwork? How is it that you found a way to enjoy the work again? Was it just the ridiculous hours? Like, did you realize that that was going to be unsustainable or was it the actual work? So I like to say a miracle happened in 2014. First, understand that as I realized that I couldn't go on doing this work, I went to my financial advisor. I said, look, I'm going to need to step away. Do I have enough money to support myself if I leave this job and decide not to work anymore? My financial advisor collected all sorts of information from me. And then he said, how much do you want to spend a year? Which is something I had never thought about. I mean, (laughs) we had great financial habits. We saved greater than 50% of our income. We invested. We owned real estate. My parents had modeled such great behavior. I was doing everything right, but I had no idea. And so I kind of scratched my head and said, you know, I'd like to live on $250,000, $300,000 a year. Now, imagine that I had no idea what I spent every year. I had never looked at my budget. I just knew that we saved. Shot in the dark. I just knew that, like, my income generally went right into investments and my wife's income pretty much went to the bank account so that we could support our lives, right? So we were saving a lot of money, but I never, I never paid attention to it. So it was a shot in the dark, and he did those calculations based on $300,000. He didn't take into account that we had 
seven figures worth of real estate, and he just didn't even put it into the calculations. And he said, you know what? You're nowhere near where you need to be. You're going to just have to keep working. So then I went to my accountant, who is my mother, and I said, Mom, when can I retire? I, I can't keep doing this. And she said, when you have $10 million. And I never questioned. I was never like, why $10 million? Where the heck did you come up with that number? It was just something she came up with. And so I said, okay, well, I don't have $10 million. I'm going to keep working. And here's where the miracle happened. I was in my office in 2014 seeing patients, and I got a phone call. And my secretary said, hey, there's this guy on the phone. His name is Jim Dolly. He just wrote a book called The White Coat Investor, and he wants you to review it for your medical blog. At the time, I was writing a blog about medicine and life. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, you're going to send me a free book. You know, sign me up. <laughs> I got his book, and I read about personal finance and financial independence. And I literally, once I opened it, I couldn't put it down. And a bunch of hours later, I knew, hey, wait, you're actually financially independent you don't need to work anymore. And that started a real period of anxiety and depression because the moment I got done celebrating, which was very quickly, I had a panic attack when I realized two things. One is if I didn't, if I wasn't being a doctor, if that was my, not going to be my identity anymore, who the heck am I? Cause I had no idea, no idea what I wanted. I had no idea what a sense of purpose looked like. And then the other thing was, Am I ready to step away from this wisp of a connection with my father who died all those years ago? You know, can I do this? So I had a panic attack. I fell into a fairly deep depression. And over the next six to 12 months, instead of just quitting my job and throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I instead started to really think and write and contemplate, what do I do next? What is purposeful for me? Where do I go with my life? And the first step was, hey, you have enough money. Let's start getting rid of the things at your job that cause you friction. Like, let's not just quit altogether, but what do you hate the most? And I was like, well, my actual practice is causing me all sorts of stress. I'm getting calls on the weekend. So I dropped my medical practice and just saw patients in the nursing homes Hmm. and then did hospice and a few other things that I'd call medical side side Hmm. hustles. Right. And we're, we're going to talk more, actually. I mean, you kind of, <laughs> I feel like you, you rounded the horn, you're, you're, you're kind of touching on financial independence that you realize that, you know, kind of where you were, but like you're talking about here about meaningful work, right? Like, I guess what I'm hearing is, is that you were able to cut back uh, in, in such a way that you were able to, to see the beauty of the art again on your walls. You're able to, to scale it back uh, to a level that you, you were able to find sustainable. And you say now that you would do this work, even if you weren't paid for it. What is your take on meaningful work? Like, how would you recommend for folks to sort of gauge and to figure out you know, whether they maybe either have the right career or if they are approaching work uh, from a healthy perspective? So that's the thing is that what's meaningful for one person isn't for another. The first thing to do is assess where you are today. What is your job? Are there parts of it you enjoy or are there parts of it you don't enjoy If there are parts of it you enjoy, could you get rid of or subtract out those things you don't enjoy? If you don't like it at all, is there a way to pivot to something that's more meaningful? But the big question, which I think you were just getting to, is how do we define what's meaningful for us? And I think there's a process where we have to start questioning what do purpose, identity, and connections look like in our life. And I think there's some exercises and some there's there's some ways to go about it. But the big mistake we often make is we kind of put the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse in the sense that we think of our finances first as opposed to thinking more about purpose and identity, which I think right. if we started there, we then could build a 
better, more meaningful financial structure for ourselves. So in your book, Jordan, you talk about uh, Liz and her story and how money was kind of a central goal in her life, right? Causing, causing real harm when it came to the things that, that actually mattered. So, so can you kind of share her story um, with our listeners? Yeah, Liz was someone who I met in hospice, and I say loosely say met, because actually when I met her, she was on life support. I really more met her family. Liz was like a lot of us. She saw that her finances were the key to living an abundant life with her two children and her spouse, and she set off on a plan to do what a lot of us do, which is build a life of financial independence. She might not have used those words, but she wanted to start building a financial life that would pay for itself. Uh, so work, not work, spend time with the family. She had all these kind of decisions, and she did just that. She dutifully saved and invested. She increased her income, and she was at this point where things were on autopilot and she could see an end. She could say, oh, in two to three years, we're going to have this much in the bank. This is going to give me all sorts of freedom. But the strange thing is instead of that making her happy or joyful, she, like I did when I read The White Coat Investor, found herself falling into a depression and being anxious. Once this whole idea of focusing on her finances were, was cleared, she didn't really know where to focus her energy. And that left to a, led to a sense of emptiness because she hadn't done that kind of purpose work. And it ended up in tragedy. She actually got more and more depressed. She started drinking more alcohol. She started sleeping less. And eventually, she fell asleep while at the wheel. And uh, hmm. I met her family when they were deciding whether to remove life support. And it was a very sad, sad story of how going after actually her financial goals didn't actually solve her problems and in many ways caused more. Hmm. Yeah, I think any of us who have gotten, uh, uh, you know, hopefully not obviously to Liz's extent, but w when we start to get serious about our personal finances, and uh, th there is that difficulty sometimes and not letting it kind of begin to run our lives as opposed to, to letting it aid us right in the mission of achieving some of the things we want to want to achieve in having more freedom in our lives sometimes it can it can overtake our lives but you you talk about money as obviously it's not unimportant it's it's very important and you actually kind of talk about it as like oxygen can you can you kind of like flesh that out for us yeah, this was actually a quote. It came up when I was doing a podcast episode with Jim Dolly, who we already mentioned. And he was describing money like oxygen. You know, if you don't have enough money for the basics, right? If you're running out of food and you can't buy more, if you're dependent on your car and all of a sudden the transmission totally falls out on you and you have to get it fixed, oxygen is exactly what you need. If you don't have that mm -hmm. money to do what you need to do, it's like not having enough oxygen. On the other hand, once you get past to a certain level, once you have enough oxygen to sustain you and be comfortable, having more oxygen doesn't do anything more. Right. And that's kind of this dichotomy of having enough to get you to a sense of safety and to cover your basic needs. But after that, it doesn't really make you any happier. And I think we forget that often. Yeah, there's like a limit to the effectiveness of oxygen, right? So um, you don't necessarily need to go walking around with an oxygen tank strapped to your face um, all day, every day. And, and in fact, that could have 
negative side effects. So there is... Yeah, too much oxygen is actually flammable, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, <not. laughs> yeah you don't want to smoke while that's yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's, Exactly. That's a good point. So yeah, no, that, I think that's a, that's a really great analogy because for some people, there's just not enough oxygen. They need, they need, um, they need it to help them breathe. And, and, and same thing for money. Some, for some people, there just isn't enough money. But then for other people, we're thinking about it incorrectly and we're assuming that it's going to relieve what ails us. But, but really, it's, it's something else we need to be searching for. Yeah, it's really a tool and not a goal. And the mistake that Liz made and the mistake even that I made early on in my career is I really focused on it as a goal. And I think that leads to emptiness in the end. That's right. Well, Jordan, we've got plenty more questions we want to get to with you uh, as we continue to talk about living life with the end in mind. We will get to all of those right after this break. So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Joel, I think there are a lot of folks who start small businesses and they're surprised at the amount of behind the scenes, the admin type work that they're not all that thrilled about. Getting your books together with uh, with some final figures so that you can file your corporate taxes, for instance. That's something we've been in the middle of. But it can really gum up the gears, potentially keeping you from doing the work you love. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. That's right. Yeah, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. There's a lot of power in the simplification of having all that information in one place. Helps you make better decisions. That's right. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash howtomoney. That's netsuite.com slash howtomoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash howtomoney. A big part of being a responsible adult is taking care of the things you care about. For instance, my bike that I ride in to work on. I keep the tires pumped. I keep the chain greased. Gone are the days of leaving your bike out in the rain for weeks at a time, like a kid. (laughs) Simply put, the things futures are built around are the things worth protecting. And making an estate plan now means gaining security of your assets and peace of mind for you and your loved ones. With Trust & Will, you can create and manage a custom estate plan starting at just $199. Go to trustandwill.com slash howtomoney 
for 10% off plus free document shipping. As the primary breadwinner for our family, I've taken the steps to ensure that Kate and the kids that they're going to be taken care of if something terrible happens to me. Each will or trust is state-specific and customized to your needs. Their simple step-by-step process guides you from start to finish with ease. So get the peace of mind you deserve by creating your estate plan with Trust and Will. Secure your assets and protect your loved ones with Trust and Will. Get 10% off plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. That's 10% off and free shipping at trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right, we're back from the break. We're still talking with Jordan Grummets, uh, talking about his new book, Taking Stock, and just how how living with the end in mind influences how we interact with our money today. And Jordan, you talk about you know we were talking about work culture and finding meaning in work, but you know you talk about in your book how the the broader American culture it actually kind of incentivizes overwork, right? And it also incentivizes spending too much money, like just insane levels of consumption. It's it's kind of like the water that we swim in and we have like a hard time realizing that maybe it's unhealthy waters that we find ourselves in, um, but it's it's what's all around us. So it's it's hard to it's hard even to decipher. So how, how do we maybe fight back when kind of the waters that we're swimming in are treacherous and we don't even know it? I think the first step is to really do some of that work on yourself and really redefine the goal. So we were saying that money is a tool, not a goal. When we treat it as a goal, the end point becomes, how do I make more money? But what if we reframe that and say, money can be a tool that helps us do some things that are really meaningful and purposeful to us, but it's one of many tools, right? We have our time, we have our energy, we have our relationships, our skill and knowledge. Those are other things we have in our tool set. So regardless of where we are economically at the moment, how can we reframe the conversation so that we start thinking about what we're using these tools for, which is really, in my opinion, getting a better understanding of our unique purpose, identity, and connections. I use those three words. You know, if you look at Maslow's pyramid, we talk about self-actualization. If you look at people who study happiness and especially economic levels and happiness, they talk about things like life actual life actualization or emotional well-being. We can call it all these different things, but in a sense, how do we use the tools we have today as well as the tools we're building in the future to start thinking about those things now and building that into our life before it's too late and be- certainly before we're on our deathbed and you meet a doctor like me? 
Well, we're going to continue to talk about fire here in a second, Doc. But, or I want to call you Doc G. <laughs> I don't know if, <laughs> if I've ever referred to you as, as Jordan, because on your show, you go by Doc G. Sorry about that. Um, Jordan, I want to hear you talk about your, your non-budget, because uh, it actually sounds a lot like maybe what, what Joel, like what you and your family When did. I read it, I was like, oh, man. We okay. <laughs> Jordan and I definitely need to talk about nerd out on this. Like, I'm a nerdy, zero-sum budgeter. Uh, I like to dive into to all the numbers and Matt can tell you where every penny went back to 2007. Literally, every yeah. penny. Uh, but but how is it that your family budgets? Because you were talking about it within the book. But I would just love to hear you talk about how you take a, a non-budgeting approach to budgeting. So we are horrible budgeters. Um, <laughs> we are not good at tracking. We are not great at writing everything down as we do it. This is just my family. Um, we're less organized than that. So from the beginning, we had a, to decide a way to budget but not budget. And so mm. what we did is we built these habits into our life that would protect us so that we didn't have to be as careful. So I mentioned it before, an easy way of doing that is we've always been a two-income family, so we automatically take one paycheck and it goes right into investments. So there's no way we can use it. We don't even consider it part of the money that's available. It doesn't even touch our savings or checking account where we would be going for money. Got it. So it's like so, it almost doesn't even exist. Yeah. And, mm. and it just makes it easier. We also have just set a certain number of other rules up that make life easier. So we don't carry cash. And remember, this is especially before the times where you could just pay for everything with your phone. But it used to be if you had cash in your pocket, you'd be more likely to go to a vending machine or something like that. So if we don't have it in our pockets, we tend not to spend it. So yeah. we just kind of set up these easy rules. Or if we're buying something big, we, we almost never buy a big purchase on a whim. Like if we walked into the store looking for something else and we see a big purchase we need, there's always going to be a cooling off period where you go home and you think about it for a week. So, so Matt would tell me as someone who's not a great budgeter and has struggled with it for a long time, um, as someone who, who wants to be a good budgeter, but just, I don't know, um, my personality and budgeting just don't jive very well together. And that's fine. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's one of those things where he would say, and I think he, he makes a point here, that when you don't budget, it actually prevents you from being able to put more money towards the things that matter the most. So let's say you are already good with money. You are good at saving and investing. Um, it's, it's disallowing you from putting some of those important dollars to work in ways that would actually positively benefit your life. So do you feel like you're missing out in that regard, um, that, you're, that you're maybe... I don't know, being too cautious or something like that. Or, or maybe you're, you're, you've got some dollars sitting on the sidelines um, that you could be using in a way that helps you live your best life now. I don't know, for lack of a better way of saying it. I think there's some habits that you set up up front that can mitigate those worries, right? So if up front you start deciding, here's how we want to save, here's what percentage we want to allocate to investments, Here's what we want to be in a bucket that we don't even think twice about using. Like if there's something we want to do and the money happens to be there in that account, go ahead and use it. I think if you're thoughtful about that in the beginning and then occasionally you reevaluate, you can take yourself away from kind of the mind-numbing part of budgeting. Mm -hmm. So it, it can't be mindless. It never can be. And as as you guys are discussing Money is meant to be used, so sidelining your money automatically and not ever reevaluating would be a bad idea. Um, but making some decisions at the start, 
and then allowing it to automatically happen just relieves you some of the moment to moment stress of the mm. everyday decision making, right? Because yeah. we'd like to automate something so that we don't have to keep on making the same decisions over and over again and causing ourselves that stress. So you're talking about setting these rules up at the beginning, which makes a ton of sense, it, which also reminds me of you talking about how you kind of front load the sacrifice when it comes to putting in the hard work on the front end, uh, because we kind of have this warped view of, of time in particular. And, and you wrote, you spent a good amount of time, a good amount of your book talking about time. Uh, and it, it's almost like there's this parallel between how you view time and, and money, perhaps, because it seems like you are very efficient with your time, right? Uh, whether that's through how you schedule things or uh, that's maybe the positive view, it, view of it. On the other end, it, it might be your kids telling you to, you know, to, to tell them to stop rushing, rushing through life. But yeah, how do you find that balance between being efficient with your time uh, versus feeling like that you are just rushing through life? Because it felt like you're kind of touching on it a little bit you know, when it comes to money because you're finding ways to intentionally, actively spend that money. Uh, talk for a, a moment, I guess, how it is that you actively are spending your time and, and finding ways to enjoy life within the moment. So I love that that statement there, spending your time. And I, I talk about this a little in the book. You know, we like to pretend that we can manipulate time. We like to pretend we can commoditize it. But in fact, the reality is, is that we have a set amount of time on this earth we don't know if that's going to be 40 years or 60 years or 80 years. And that time doesn't change. It's just there. So the only thing we really have any modicum of control over is what we put, what activities we place in those time slots, right? If you think about your life, and we could call those time slots days, weeks, months, or years, or however you want to parse them out. But those time slots are stable, they don't change. The only thing we possibly can do is change our behavior. So the question becomes, how do we become most efficient at filling those time slots with things that have meaning and purpose for us? And that's the idea. Like, is that front-loading? Mm -hmm. For some people, that will be front-loading so that they can make a lot of money, this potential energy or fuel, which then can relieve them of things like going to a job to work so that they can then fill those time slots with other things that are more important to them, like spending time with family or hobbies. That's the idea. That's the framework. What the finances do is the finances, as I was saying, is just one more tool to help us better control what we fill those time slots with. But just like everything else, you can go too far. And I found this in my life also is that I became so efficient at filling those time slots that sometimes I was letting pa life pass me by or causing myself mm. or my family significant stress because I was acting if, as if there wasn't time abundance. I was really living in a place of time stress and it was self-created. Mm. I was putting that on myself. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, when we talk about the fire movement, that's largely what people in the fire movement are seeking after, right? Is full, total control over every second of their future, as opposed to feeling like or knowing that they have to go into work to earn a paycheck. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, um, because, it, you know, when you found out after reading Jim Dolly's book, you were like, wait a second, I'm kind of a part of this movement. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically there, right? I have saved and invested enough money where um, uh, I don't necessarily have to go back and work anymore. And, and I, I was actually fascinated by this little spot in your book where you, you talk about how the fire movement has taught you a lot, but you also, you also say that it's steeped in fear. And so 
I don't know. I kind of I tend to agree with you on this, but I'm I'm curious as to what you mean by that. So I think one fear that it's steeped in is this idea that we are going to die broke or that we're not going to have enough money. So we scurry to collect as money as po- as much money as possible. Us experts who like to talk on podcasts talk about things like the safe withdrawal rate or the 25 times rule. And we endlessly go back and forth about the importance of knowing what exactly is enough. Whereas in reality, the fire movement sometimes gets it wrong in the sense that we don't have to wait until someday to start living a life of meaning and purpose now. Hmm. And it gets back to this idea that money is a tool instead of a goal. I think sometimes the fire movement makes money that goal And so we abandon everything else to get there, whereas I think we should look at it as a tool, and it's wonderful to hit financial independence, so you have a lot of that tool in order to do what you want. But financial independence might come in 10 or 20 years. It might not be feasible for everybody. How can we start living lives of meaning and purpose? How can we start meeting our true goals now, regardless of where we are in our financial independence journey, regardless of how much net worth we have saved up. And so that's where I think we get it wrong. And to give the FIRE movement credit, it's starting to really pivot. And that's why you have these movements which talk a lot more about enjoying life now, things like Slow-Fi or Coast-Fi or Barista-Fi. All these movements are kind of saying, yes, financial independence is important, but I'm not going to be there for 20 years. I want to enjoy life today. How do I fit my financial framework into a life of meeting today? Yeah. And just like we're talking with time, it it takes just a a level of intentionality to determine, to predetermine essentially what it is that, you know, what your, what your life is going to look like, whether it be with your finances or with the, uh, the hours or the minutes that pass by. And I think for so many people in the movement at times, it has gotten so easy to buy into, at least in prior years, a one, like, uh, just this one viewpoint. Yeah. One size fits all approach to fire. And for a lot of people, it's, it's left them with, some years of misery. And so I've seen that as a real outcome. And so I agree that maybe the changing face and nature and the different, you know, paths to get there, because I think, you know, Matt and I were all about pursuing financial independence. But um, if it's going to cause you a decade or more of misery to get there, then it's probably not worth it. (laughs) And you should probably rethink, you know, what you want your life to look like um, from the get go. Yeah. And you know, there are people who are waking up in the morning and don't know where the food that's going to be on their table for dinner is coming from. And for those people looking at fire right now is probably not an option. I would argue the other way around that looking at meaning and purpose and evaluating your tools, both economically and otherwise is something you can do even when you're in the most dire of circumstances to start building a life Hmm. and I, I think if you just say, Oh, fire is the answer for a lot of people it's not going to serve them. I'm thinking now about how you were talking about the different hierarchy of needs that we have. And like you're talking about like purpose and your identity, the different connections that you have. You're talking about how someone who might be maybe at the lower end of the income spectrum, how for them, they're, they're not really, fire isn't serving them, but that is something that they can strive towards. When it comes to maybe what we see as our purpose, like that's something that also changes and, and that sometimes we're striving to see change over time as well. Like how do you pivot during when you find yourself in some different life phases as you do feel like your purpose is, is shifting some? So purpose can definitely change from time to time. 
And so I think it's really important to do a few things. One is one thing that we do with hospice patients that I talk about in the book is a life review. And it's just a process, and I'm not going to go through it all right now, but it's a process of asking yourself some basic questions about who you are, what's happened to you in your past, what are you hoping for in the future, and, and what is real meaningful to you. I think the first thing to do is to do that life review on a somewhat regular basis, maybe once a year, so we can start noticing when our purpose is shifting. That's kind of step one. Step two is once we have a better feeling for our purpose, how do we take where we are today, and this could be in our life situation or this could be in our job and our employment, but how do we take where we are today and navigate towards a life that feels more purposeful? I spend some time in the book talking about the art of subtraction. This is this idea that once we have a better feeling for what our purpose is, we can look at where we are today, look at our jobs and our lives and say, what's giving us friction? What's keeping us from that deeper sense of purpose we are now more in touch with? And what could we remove from our current life to provide more space to, to work towards purpose? So I think step one, again, is that you have to do some type of life review on a regular basis to see how purpose is changing. And then it's really looking at your life of where you stand today and trying to decide what you could or couldn't subtract from it and how that could move you in the right direction. Hmm. I like that. All right. Hey, we've got a few more questions to get to with you. Jordan, we want to talk, uh, continue talking about living life with the end in mind. What a great place to start when we're thinking about where we put our money with, with how we use whatever resources we've been given. Uh, we'll, we'll get to just yeah, a few, few more questions with you right after this. So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. I got my first life insurance policy almost a decade ago. And hey, I'm still kicking it. I very much hope that trend continues, Matt. And since then, I've actually added coverage via Policy Genius. And if you out there, you're listening and you're worried that this is going to be a massive pain getting life insurance, think again. Policy Genius made it an incredibly easy process. If you have loved ones who rely on you and your income, life insurance is a crucial part of your financial plan. Not only does it provide a financial backstop for your family, it also gives you peace of mind too. Plus, the longer you wait, the more rates go up because life insurance rates typically increase as you get older. So if this is something you've been putting off, it's time to make it happen now. That's right. Yeah. And even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs and it may not follow you if you leave your job. 
With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey folks, it's Matt. I've got to tell you about something new I've been trying this year. I've been drinking a little Health Aid Kombucha every day, and I feel amazing. It comes in so many delicious flavors, but my favorites so far are Pink Lady Apple and Ginger Lemon. So what exactly is Health Aid Kombucha? Well, it is a fermented, bubbly, probiotic tea that's good for your gut. It's blended with real fruit juice, and it's super thirst-quenching, a little sweet and a little tangy, and very refreshing. I'm sure you've heard about the importance of gut health and supporting uh, your overall health. It's something I've read up on a good bit over the past year, which is why I've made Health Aid Kombucha a part of my everyday routine. Literally every afternoon, I'll have some. It's super easy, and it's affordable, too. My favorite grocery store, Aldi, they carry it as well. If you want to give it a try and see how great you can feel, look for the brown bottle with an anchor and make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000-plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money all right we are back from the break and we're talking with dr jordan grummet and jordan let's get kind of personal i mean this whole book i guess is personal for, <laughs> for yeah. you uh but like how do you personally think about your future now and the reality of death in light of your profession, you know, in light of your proximity to those who have gone through this period of, at the end of their life as they are looking back and reevaluating. So I think I've really learned two major things as a hospice doctor, which is truly a, it's a huge privilege to be with people at this time of their lives. The one is I really don't fear death the way I used to. Like I've been present hmm. for many deaths and generally, not always, but generally they're peaceful and painless. Um, and if you're lucky and if you've set up your life, hopefully in a good way, you're surrounded by people and family and things that are important to you. So my fear of the physical transformation is certainly less than it's ever been. I'm, I'm much more at peace personally with this idea that one day I will die and what it'll look like. But the other thing it's really taught me is when someone gets told that they have six months or less to live, a, it's horrible and fear-inducing and all those things we would expect if you could imagine yourself in that situation. But there is like this little positive that we usually don't think about. You're almost given permission to drop all the BS that society has put on you. <laughs> you're able to drop worries about how am I going to make money and you're worried about, you're able to just drop all these basic 
things that have shrouded your clear vision of what you want, and it gives you the freedom to finally look at your life and say, what truly is important to me? Hmm. Which are those relationships that mean something? Which of those bucket list items or achievements or experiences should I look at over the next six months because they were really salient and I didn't chase them? It's such a powerful thing to see that freedom the dying have And I really started questioning in my own life as well as the people who I was talking to on my podcast. It's like, how do we give you that sense of freedom to look at your life clear-eyed today when you're 30 or 40 or 50, certainly way before you're on your deathbed, Mm -hmm. and start making actual changes now, actionable changes that can bring you some of that sense of meaning and purpose today so that you'll have less regrets when you get to your deathbed. Yeah, you call it the gift of mortality, which I thought was a really powerful way to phrase it. But you you say that it's even more powerful in the hands of people who aren't imminently facing death, right? So how do we get a sense of that ultimate future reality and allow that to have deeper, more meaningful impact on maybe how we're approaching our finances, our lives, like uh, the people we love, our relationships, you know, with, with the end in mind, how do we get a visceral understanding um, and, and so that we can let it impact us? So this is the difficult part. This mm-hmm. is where we really <laughs> get into the work of figuring out what our purpose and identity are and what are those connections in our life that are important to us. You know, for me, it was seeing the dying. And so I've translated that for the rest of us How do you figure out your purpose? Well, imagine you laying on your deathbed and bemoaning your life and saying, I really regret that I never had the energy, courage, or time to. Whatever comes next is a huge part of your purpose. So I Mm. invite people to do this life review process to ask themselves specifically this question and visualize now what that would feel like. We've heard it before. People say, write your own eulogy, right? Same idea. Be aspirational. Think about what would I really be sad that I didn't try, that I didn't have the courage or energy to go after, and start thinking about those things today. And so that's the life review process that I really think we should be doing on a regular basis. After that, you really have to start thinking about identity. Who am I? And have you ever done this? Have either of you guys ever sat in a room and asked yourself, I am, and filled in the blank? And and iterated on it and done it many, many times. Like, cause I know when I do, the first thing I came up in my mind is I said, I am a doctor. Hmm. And it's so funny cause I actually identify with that less than ever, but it's still that kind of personal identity that I held on to. And when I started really asking myself who I am, I had to ask myself that question over and over again before I really got to some of the deeper answers. Interesting. No, I've never done that, but it sounds like, yeah, something, something I would like to try because I don't know what, one of the things that you mentioned just now, you use the word courage. And I feel like courage is often the thing or a lack of courage from attempting some of those things that maybe sound good or sound appealing, or we wish that our better selves would tackle, but it's, it's often a lack of, it's not a lack of financial resources. It's, it's not even a lack of ability. It's, it's a, it's an inability to summon the courage to, to do the the difficult thing, it seems too daunting. Um, and I don't know, it, 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 that's at least from personal experience, I think, I think that's true. You know, it's funny too. We always fear and 
struggle with the courage to do those things that are most important to us. And part of the reason is we're worried that we're going to fail. And I'm reminded of a patient that I took care of named Ernesto. And his dream was to climb Mount Everest. And in his 20s, he actually took six months off and attempted to make this climb, thank goodness, because he actually died in his 40s of leukemia. So he Mm. didn't put off something that was deeply important to him. But the interesting thing about Ernesto is he would tell these stories to all of us hospice people with a big smile on his face Mm -hmm. about the time he tried to climb Mount Everest. Guess Mm. what? He didn't succeed. Like, the weather changed, and he didn't make it. I think he made it less than halfway up. But on his deathbed, he could say, this was important to me. Yeah. And man, I got up there and did it. And so, yeah, I didn't succeed. (laughs) But at least... I had the courage to try. So it's it's not whether you succeed or fail. What really people regret is that they didn't have the courage to try something that was really important to them. Yeah. Hmm. Or uh, in my case, sometimes I'm just too dang cheap <laughs> and I'm unwilling to pay the money to do the things that I say I value. Yeah. Uh, and it takes overcoming that, which I guess maybe in and of itself, uh, there, there takes a degree of, of courage in order to say, I have enough uh, in order to do whatever small you know, <laughs> seemingly uh, inexpensive thing. But uh, I, I like those questions that you presented there, Doc, um, or Jordan. <laughs> uh, on a practical note, uh, you, you know, you kind of talk about the need for an ice binder. Can you uh, talk about this? Talk about why this is so necessary for folks? Sure. It's an in-case-of-emergency binder. Especially we see this in the financial independence movement. Usually you have one spouse or family member who is all into this, right? And so they're in charge of investments. They're in charge of life insurance. They're in charge of all the passwords and all the payments. And we tend to forget that just like my father, that one person could die young and unexpectedly and they could leave a mess for the rest of their family who know nothing about the finances and who know nothing about the passwords, et cetera. So there's uh, something called an ice binder. And in case of emergency binder, it's something you can fill out, which pretty much helps you put all the salient financial and social information down so that, God forbid, something would happen to you. Your family has access to everything they need. There are a number of commercially available templates. And this has real-life consequences. I've seen a number of patients who have died, and no one knew code to the safe and they had expensive they had money and jewelry and coins and they bought this thousands and thousands of dollars safe to protect their belongings and they died suddenly and then no one had access another interesting story is i had a patient who got married had a kid her husband died unexpectedly and then when they went to look into his life insurance found out that the beneficiary was a past girlfriend it had been Ooh. a number of years ago and he had never changed the beneficiary oh, no. thank thank god this person actually handed it over to her oh wow um, but if they well, had had an ice binder <laughs> if they had had an ice binder they would have been filling all this out and then asked you about beneficiaries they probably would have gotten smart to the fact that they had to change that beneficiary if they had been yeah. doing something like that codifying all this important financial information so it's just really important to do, and it can save our loved ones a lot of stress. Yeah. All right. I like that. And so la- last question I want to ask you, Doc. You uh, you are a prolific writer, prolific content creator. And I think what that reflects is that you ha- you find a lot of meaning in that, right? I think you your, your podcast is more than anything a labor of love. It's something that you just you thoroughly enjoy, like it comes across when I listen. <laughs> um, and so 
Uh, for you, I think I recently read that you're planning on maybe stepping back on how much you're writing. So I want to know, like, what has a consistent writing practice given you? And, and why are you planning maybe to cut back on that a little bit? So writing was the first thing I did in 2014 when I really started feeling depressed and down because I realized I was financially independent and didn't know what to do with it. Eventually, I started my own blog and started writing every day, and that almost became my online diary, my accountability partner, where I could work through what was going on in my mind about money, and it eventually helped me take action. So writing, I think, is essential for me to be healthy, and I think in a sense it's a meditation on what's happening in my life and what are my stressors. I found as I've gotten farther, and this may be the issue with podcasting, is I spend less time writing and more time podcasting because I think it's a different form of creation. And what I really love about podcasting, especially since I often do interviews, is that it's really collaborative. Hmm. And so when I started pulling away from work as a doctor, I had to start filling my time with things that had meaning and purpose. For me, it was being a communicator which included things like public speaking, writing, and podcasting. But the friction happens to be less with podcasting. And again, there's more sense of connection. And that's why I think I moved mm -hmm. more in that direction. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, going back to the hierarchy of needs and the things that we <laughs> find ourselves needing and valuing. And maybe as you do step back from work, you're going to find yourself not collaborating with other folks as much. And so finding the different ways to be able to... I don't know, scratch that social itch a little yeah. bit. That's really important, especially as folks enter into stages of, of financial independence in their lives. But Jordan, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. We always enjoy sitting down with you and chatting, catching up. Uh, but where can folks learn about your book, Taking Stock, and when is it going to publish? So the easiest way to go about that is go to jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. There you can find out everything about the book as well as you can learn about my other satellite projects. There's really three main ones. One is the podcast, Earn and Invest. You can find the link there. The other is my financial blog, Diversify, which is where I really originally started writing about all these personal finance concepts. And the last is my medical blog. I started writing about medicine in about 2005 and consistently blogged about medicine until 2017 or 18 or so before I started my financial blog. So there's a link to that too. It just talks about medicine and life. If you just want to skip to the podcast, earnandinvest.com. But any of those ways are good ways to reach me. And you'll see a link to the book pretty much anywhere you go with my name on it. Like I said, you're prolific. <laughs> you got a lot of irons in the fire. And uh, we'll, we'll put a link to all those in our show notes at howtomoney.com. So, uh, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been a pleasure as always. And it is always a pleasure to talk with Jordan. Uh, Joel, what were your thoughts from today's episode okay. with Jordan Grummet? Big takeaway. It was, there was a lot that we talked about. And yeah. one, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of deeper stuff yeah. that, uh, you know, we, we talk about occasionally here on the show, but uh, I'm glad we were able to dedicate an entire episode to end of life stuff. Yes, agreed. And things it's one, that matter. one of those things that I think to live life to the fullest, you have to think about the mm -hmm. end. And yeah. so it's an important thing to wrestle with. And a lot of us like to put it off, um, not engage with that. And me, I'll be honest, like I have not had, fortunately, many brushes with death. Um, I've had a, a close friend die when I was in my early 20s. But for the most part, 
I have n- I've been to like very few fun- funerals, and so yeah, I, I actually I, I mean actually, literally I don't have any friends who have ever died. Yeah, uh, and so I mean I feel like you've even had more exposure to you know th- than I have, but like I do th- feel like it's going to kind of be a, a, a an eye opening period of time whenever that you know when that happens because it's going to happen yeah of course and i try to personally like engage with it through books through movies even like through other firsthand experiences of Mm -hmm. people that have dealt with it and and because that's how i've mostly interacted with death i feel like jordan's book was one that i was excited to read and didn't let down but yeah my big takeaway i think was when he was talking about non-budgeting and i think that is for people who are incredibly good with their finances and don't like the uh, drudgery of budgeting, it's possible. But what he said was you have to set up rules in order to make life easier. And so, yeah, you can't just uh, forsake budgeting without coming up with maybe these other uh, ways that are going to ensure that you meet your financial goals Mm -hmm. and ensure that you're saving and investing enough, as well as setting enough aside to enjoy the things you say you enjoy. So I I like that he kind of did both of those things. But if you take that route, I think it's possible to not have to have a budget and still be able to like live a fulfilling personal life and have totally. a successful financial life. Yeah, you just got to have those systems in place. And, and that's definitely something that he did. And you, cho- you chose that one because that's basically how you live life. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking for some of that. Some of that. Uh, I just needed someone else justification. to sign off and say that it's okay. And so, yeah, now that um, I have a doctor on my side, I, I feel better. <laughs> my doctor said that this is <laughs> exactly. okay. He prescribed a non-budget mat, okay? Um, my big takeaway is going to be when he was just like towards the end there. Essentially, a lot of what this episode talked about was where we're all about trying to find that balance between living life now, right? Like that YOLO uh, <laughs> approach to life, but also like where we're trying to be smart with our money, where we are trying to set ourselves up for the future and be financially independent. Uh, and what he was talking about was that there should be some of these questions that we ask ourselves, not at the end of our life, but to ask them now, where we should be questioning, like, what are our dreams? Um, you know, like, ask yourself, like, if I, like, I always wish I had time to do X and, and fill in the blank. You're basically pre-writing an obituary for yourself. Uh, and you want to make sure that you're able to include the things that truly matter to you. I love what he talked about with the guy who... The Everest? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. funny because I actually just met someone recently who climbed Everest, who what? summited. He's no one of the, the first, I think, um, US African Americans to summit Everest. Oh, nice. And coolest dude so cool to hear his story he's trying to become the first black american to summit the tallest seven peaks on nice. e- or the tallest peak on each continent okay so i don't know man that was that was cool that was, to meet him that was really cool but I, I mean, what the reason he brought that story up was that because it's about attempting to do things right it's about like you were saying having the courage to do things not necessarily to get things perfect uh, but to make sure that you are actually giving it a giving it a go yeah um, but because you know that's what you kick yourself for in the end is if you're like having not attempted it I, there was something I wanted to do and I didn't even give it a shot exactly like, like the fact that that guy had a smile on his face as he's talking about how he failed at something yeah. like you would think oh yeah he's gonna be bummed that he didn't actually summit it it's like no he he knew that he gave it his all he knew yeah. that he gave it a good shot but Jordan was talking about how going through this life review process regularly you know I don't think it's something that you should think about <laughs> like weekly uh, but at different stages of life, maybe even annually at the end of the year, that can be a part of your your personal finance wrap up where yeah. you're not just looking at your net worth and, and how you spent your money that year, but then to actually ask yourself some of these life actualization questions like, you know, who am I? What am I doing with my life? Am, am I happy? Those Derek um, Zoolander questions. Yeah. <laughs> who am I? 
Uh, yeah, I think we're this close <laughs> to taking it that direction during the interview, but I'm glad I'm glad we didn't. <laughs> Trying to you know not get too immature with yeah. you know, when you have a doctor on the show, but <laughs> exactly. But uh, all right, let's introduce. Uh, let folks know what beer we were drinking this episode. This one was an American sour ale, and it was called Indolence. This was Joel. This was a delicious beer or beverage i should say because it says a malt beverage with natural flavors (laughs) i'm not sure if this is an actual beer but had passion fruit lactose vanilla what were your thoughts on this one close enough they're like cousins right so i thought it was good yeah i still enjoyed it no i thought it was good too and of course it's called indolence but probably the difficult name uh is because the the name of the brewery is pretentious barrel house so they're coming (laughs) up with pretentious names for their beers which i'm fine with uh but yeah this one was like fruity uh, more fruity than tart but also had a nice balance of of, of sourness going along with the fruit. And then there was like some lactose and vanilla, which gave it like a sweet finish. So I thought it was like a really interesting balance of kind of all those things. I, I thought it was a great beer. It had some nice flavors. It was really aggressive. Uh, the yeah. acid level was nice and high. I am always looking for that, especially, you know, when you have some of these different barrel-aged beers, it's always enjoyable to have something that feels like it's got a little bit of bite and I'm glad that you and I got to enjoy this one today. We highly recommend it. Listeners can find a picture of this beer as well as our show notes up on our website at howtomoney.com. So until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.